I am, uh, as we, you know, recite the Apostles' Creed many weeks here, I am continually thankful for that line in there. I believe in the Holy Spirit, um, especially as I get up to, to stand up here and, and uh, talk about God's Word. Um, I'm grateful for the Holy Spirit because it's not just you and me in here. The Spirit of God is here, and it's up to Him to speak to us and to show us Christ. And so uh, I hope you are planning on him speaking. I hope you are ready to listen to him speak. Um, no matter what's coming out of my mouth, I hope you are listening intently to what, what the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning. Um, out of all the people in your life, who would you say knows you better than anybody else? Out of all the people that you know in your life, who would you say knows you better than anybody? This morning we're going to finish our, our series on, on the book of Psalms by looking at Psalm 139. And if you, wanna, if you have a Bible, you can turn in your Bible to Psalm 139 and follow along there. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your order of worship. Um, I realize especially when we have longer passages like this, the font is not as big as some of you, some of you would like it to be. And uh, if that is the case, you know, as you're looking before the service starts, feel free to grab one of the Bibles that's in the foyer and you can look at, look at the passage in there. The font is a little bit bigger in there. Um, but, uh, but we're going to look at Psalm 139, which is all about how well God knows us. It's all about how well God knows us. So listen to God's word as I read Psalm 139. Start at verse 1. This is written by David. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night even the darkness is not dark to you the night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works my soul knows it very well my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look at your word uh, that you would show us Jesus. We pray that your spirit would be felt by each and every person here, that you would convict us, that you would fill us and encourage us, that you would comfort us, and more than anything else, that every single person in here would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had that uncomfortable feeling when you you go somewhere, and even if you know the people there, you, you notice somebody is looking at you and they continue to look at you, and, they, and they're, they're, they're kind of like, you know, unusually preoccupied with you. They continually look at you, or maybe they're staring at you. It's, it's very uncomfortable. You're like, what? you know, do I have something on my face? Do I have something in my teeth? Is my shirt inside out? Is my fly down? It's, you know, it's, it's very uncomfortable when you go somewhere, and somebody or people are staring at you or looking at you too much. Um, the problem is, though, that if we go somewhere and everybody treats us as invisible, that doesn't feel good either, does it? Like we have this issue, all of us have this issue where we want people to notice us, but we don't want people to stare at us, right? Uh, We want people to know us, but we don't want people to know us too well. I don't know how many of you guys experience, you know, I've, I've worked different jobs in my life, and there, there are times I, I want my boss to notice that I'm, that I'm doing work, that I'm doing a good job, but I do not want my, my boss to be looking over my shoulder constantly, 24 hours a day, right? So you want, we want to be noticed, but we don't want to be examined or, critis- you know, like really overly looked at, scrutinized. We have this issue. Well, Psalm 139 Um, In Psalm 139, God puts his finger right on this issue, on this tension. If you're familiar with this passage, if you're familiar with this this, uh, chapter, which a lot of you probably are, um, you probably take some comfort from this chapter in the Bible, from being known by God, but that's probably because you're not really thinking about it too closely. Because not only does this tell us that God knows us, this kind of points out that God is staring at us. His gaze upon us is intense as you look at this psalm and think about it. You can't get away from his gaze. And as you think about it, it can get uncomfortable. And and David starts off by talking in the very first verse. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And the very first, ver- first four verses, David talks about the knowing gaze of God that is looking upon David. He's, he's talking about how, how God knows him so well as he looks at him. As God gazes at David, he knows him inside and out, right? He knows when he, when he sits down and when he rises up. He knows that, you know, when he's doing stuff and when he's just chilling out. He knows, he, he searches out his path and is lying down. He's acquainted with all of his ways. He knows everything about David, all of his ways. This isn't just like the things that he's doing. God knows his heart. God knows his motives. God knows how he's feeling. 
God knows, you know, the, the, the things that he's not even think about, thinking about, the, the, the things that, that, that are driving him. God knows him better than he knows himself. In verse 4, it says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. This isn't just some party trick where God can predict what we're going to say. God actually knows the words that come out of our wet mouth, and he knows why they're coming out of our mouth, and he knows the tone with which they're coming out of our mouths. And he knows the motive for which we're using those words. He knows the hurt that we're going to do with those words. He knows all, everything about those words. He knows everything. It's interesting how, I, I don't know if I can explain it as, as well as uh, Tim Keller, I was listening to Tim Keller talk about um, these verses where he talks about, you know, this is kind of just, uh, um, we're just kind of like thinking, you know, logically, like how, do, how does God see everything, and, and he talks about how God sees time in a different way we see time. We all live in the present, and we can kind of look back on the past, and we kind of wonder about the future, but as God looks at everything, he sees past, present, future, all at the same time. And so God sees and knows your past, and your present, and your future all at once. He knows you better than you know yourself. That's mind-blowing, right? So God knows us, he knows us, he knows our weaknesses, he knows our tendencies towards self-centeredness, he knows the things that make us us, all of our quirks, he knows every little detail about us as he looks at us, he knows you, through and through, better than you know yourself. But not only do we see the knowing gaze of God here, we also see the pursuing gaze of God here. In verses seven to 12, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. He says, if I go as high as I can up into the heavens, I can't get away from you. Sheol is the place of the dead. He says, if I can go down in the depths of the earth where the dead are, I can't get away from you there. He says, if I take the wings of the morning, in other words, if I go to the farthest eastern place of the world where the sun rises, I can't get away from you. You're there. If I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, if, if you live in Israel, the uttermost parts of the sea are the western, as far as you can go to the west. God is there. He cannot get away from God no matter where he goes, no matter where we go. We cannot get away from him. God is always looking at us. He's always beholding us. He's always gazing upon us. That means where, when you go in your car, he is gazing at you. When you go into the office, he is gazing at you. When you come home, he is looking at you. He is there. When you go into the most private place you can be, he is there. He sees you. When you go on vacation to the other side of the world, he is there. When you go on a business trip, he is there. When you walk in your hotel room, he is there looking at you. You cannot get away from him. He is always pursuing you. This can start to get overwhelming, can it? And even he, he starts talking about, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. When the Bible talks about darkness, it's often talking about things that are, that are difficult, things that are painful. You know, the, the, the times in life when we are experiencing things that like, I, I don't know how I'm gonna handle this. And we think maybe, I, I don't know if God is here. And yet, he says, no. Even the night is like the day to you. 
you're here, even in our darkest moments, in the moments where we experience the greatest loss and the greatest heartache, in the moments when we receive a diagnosis that we realize is gonna change our lives, God is there. He's there in those moments. And he's actually doing something. He's actually working in those moments as he's gazing upon us. And that brings me to the third point. Verses 13 to 16 talk about the creative gaze of God. How God looks at us and he, he doesn't just, he's not just observing, but he's actually doing something. He's actually making something, creating something incredible with us. If you look at verse 13, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God saw you before you were born, before you really like entered the world, God saw you, and not only did he see you, but he was doing something to make you, you. He is the one responsible for everything about you. He is the one who, who, who is responsible for all of the things, all of, all of the aspects of your personality, all the way that you look, the things that you love, your passions. He, is, he, is, he knit you together from before you were even born. He was gazing upon you. And, and I love this, this, this verse in, in verse uh, 16 where he says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. How it, it kind of gives us a picture of God as an author. God is writing a story and he is writing a story with your life as he was shaping you and fashioning you and knitting you together. He's like, I've got a plan. I'm gonna do something beautiful with this person's life. I'm gonna write an incredible story with this person's life. And I don't, I don't think David's trying to get us to really start contemplating you know, the, the role of free will in life and God's control over our life as he says, you know, every day was formed for me when as yet there were none of them. But I think he's trying to get us to, to notice God has a plan for every single one of your days. And yes, he is working to write something meaningful and beautiful with your life. And guess what? Sorry to tell you, the story that God is writing, it's not primarily about you. It's not primarily about you. It's his story that he is writing, but you play an essential part of it. And he has a, a, a significant role for you to play. He is the author of your story. Every single day that you live, all of the things that you deal with, all of the things that you face, the exciting things, the ups, the victories, the difficulties, the failures, God is doing something with them all to write something glorious. And so as we think about this, as we think about God's gaze upon us, that it is absolutely all-knowing and that it pursues us, we cannot escape it, that it's creative, that he's doing something with our life, that he has a purpose, that he hasn't really asked for our, um, our authorization to write the story. There's a few different ways that we can respond. 
a few different ways that we can respond. One response, as you see here, that David responds with is, is this response of simple awe and wonder. God, I can't understand this. This blows my mind, right? What does he say in verse six? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God, I cannot understand this. I cannot fathom how well you know me. I cannot understand the fact, I, I cannot comprehend the fact that you planned my entire life out, every single one of my days, before I was even born. I can't understand it. It's, it's just, it should drive us to our knees, saying, God, you are God, and I'm not. There's another way that David responds in here that kind of, it kind of throws me uh, a little bit, and it's hard to really understand. It's, it's really tempting to just kind of read through verse 18 and, and just uh, cut off the last several verses because um, they, they are hard to understand. What is David saying here? Why does he, he's like thinking about how God knows him so well and he can't get away from him and God knows everything and he's got a plan for everything. And then all of a sudden, David just starts frothing at the mouth here. You know, and he starts talking about all of these people who are, who are malicious and wicked and evil, those people who hate God. And he's like, these guys need to be destroyed. I hate these people. Why does, he, why does his, his, his mind turn to the evil that is in the world? Well, I mean, number one, it recognizes the reality that as we live in this world, there is, there is a ton of, of stuff in this world that is not the way that God wants it to be. There's a ton of evil in this world. There are people who painfully do things to others and have done things to us. And so as, as David, I think the thing that makes most sense out of it to me is as David thinks about how God knows him so well and he knows everything so well, then as he looks out of this world and he, and he sees the evil in the world, he realizes God knows that just as well, right? God's not oblivious to the evil and the wickedness that is in the world, to the pain that people are inflicting on one another and they're inflicting on him. And so he says, God, if, if you know me so well and you must know what's going on here, you need to do something about it. It's, it's kind of a, a righteous desire for God to eradicate all that is evil because he knows, he knows. But even as David longs for God to, to destroy the evil in the world, look at where he ends up in verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my, heart, my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. David recognizes, even as he thinks about all of the wickedness out there, he realizes that there's also some in him as well. And he's like, God, I realize I'm part of the problem too. See if there's any grievous way in me. Help me. Help me. But then I think the, the, the kind of regular response to this by every single one of us in different ways um, and some of us it's maybe more blatant than others, is as we think about the way that God knows us so intimately, the way that God pursues us and we can't get away from him, um, the way that many of us respond is to resist that. We resist it. When we think about God knowing us, everything, the temptation is to hide from him. The temptation is to run the other direction. To, to think about the fact that God is pursuing me, the temptation for me is to, is to, is to run away from him. And, and for some of us, it's, it's, it's just ignoring him. 
and just being like, I'm just going to live my life as if he's not even here. We don't think about him as much as we could or should. For some of us, it's just outright, I'm just going to commit to believing that God doesn't even exist and that he's not relevant. That's, that's how some of us deal with it. We resist him. And for others of us, it's just a matter of, you know, we've come to believe in Jesus and we're trying to follow God and, and yet we're not exactly happy when we think about his creative work in our lives as he's writing the story of our lives. We're not exactly happy about giving up creative control of our life. You know, we, we, there, there's, there's storylines in our lives that we're not exactly content with, that we're not willing to accept that we're angry about, that, we're, that we, you know, I, I gotta change this. Whether it's a job that is just unbearable or people in my family that are making my life miserable or um, stuff that my kids are going through. You know, we, we, we wrestle with God over creative control. And that's how a lot of us resist it. Well, I, I'm, I'm not a poetry expert, and I, I'm not gonna, not gonna pretend to understand the entire poem, but there's a, a poem that, that is, is very, I, I think, when you read this psalm and you know this poem, it's, it's a, there's a very clear connection with it. But there's a poem called The Hound of Heaven. I don't know how many of you guys have heard of it. A guy named Francis Thompson, and he wrote it in the late 19th century. And in, in The Hound of Heaven, he, he talks about how Francis himself had fled from God throughout his life in all different ways. And yet what God did is he proved to be the hound of heaven, constantly following him, not letting him alone. And I'm just going to read a few, few lines from the, the poem. It says this, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running, laugh, under running laughter, up vistas, vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet all things betray thee who betrayest me. That's what God was saying to Francis. No matter how hard you tried to run from me, all of those things that you tried to hide, that you try to hide in and run to, they will betray you. I am pursuing you, and if I want you, you are mine. You cannot escape me. You cannot escape me no matter how scary that might be, no matter how intimidating that might be, no matter how uncomfortable that might be, the story that I'm writing with your life, you cannot wrestle control from me. And so what do we need to do? What we need to do is, is we need to come to a place of surrender. Surrender. But it's not just surrender to the fact to the intimidating fact of God's knowing everything, to the intimidating fact of the fact that God's gonna pursue me and he's gonna, gonna get what he wants for my life. What we really need to, to surrender to more than anything else is to, to, to the fact that God's gaze is full 
of grace. We need to surrender to his grace-filled gaze upon us. I I began by pointing out that that we all want to be known, but we don't want to be known too well, right? I think the reason this is the case is because if if anybody, if we we realize that if anybody, just the average person found out everything about us, if if they really knew us really well, they would recoil. They would push us away. They would reject us. Um, it's an old show, but, but if any of you guys ever watched Seinfeld, there's a great episode where um, Jerry tells his friend George to just unburden himself. You know, just, just tell me, you know, just share your deepest, darkest fears and secrets with me, you know, and, and George is like, okay. So George just goes on and on, and there's this like time lapse of him talking and talking and talking, sharing all of these ugly details of his life. And at the very end, when he's done, George is like, that's me. You know, those are all, you know, all the darkest things in my heart. And, and Jerry, it just pans over to Jerry. And Jerry's just is like, good luck with all that. You know, like that's, that's what we know will happen if people know us. They will run the other direction. They won't stay. what I think every single one of us really longs for, what we were made for, is we were made to be seen through and seen into, and at the same time, have the one who sees us say, I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm, you're absolutely accepted by me, and I'm gonna delight in you, no matter how much stuff you might be embarrassed about, no matter how much you might be ashamed of, no matter how many ways you've failed, we long for and need someone to look at us and say, you're enough. I love you. Now, the really cool thing is that uh, as you read through the rest of the Bible and you come to the Gospels and you look at the life of Jesus, that's how Jesus looked at people. That's how Jesus looked at people, you know. Jesus, it often referred to him as knowing what was in the hearts of men, right? He knew. He knew. He knew what people were thinking. He knew what people were saying behind his back. He knew into the hearts of people. There's this beautiful, beautiful passage, this account where Jesus is going with his disciples. He's walking with his disciples from one place to another, and they, and they go through Samaria, and back in those days, if you don't know anything about the Samaritans and the Jews, the, the Samaritans were kind of like they'd watered the Jewish religion down in a number of ways, and so they were looked upon with disgust and disdain by the Jewish people. And they didn't want to, if, if, the, if a Jewish person knew that you were a Samaritan, they would avoid you. They would run the other way. They actually would often go around Samaria instead of going through it in order to avoid those people. And yet Jesus, he didn't care. He went right through Samaria, and he ended up sitting there at a well, and there's a Samaritan woman there at the well in John 4. And this is, you know, first of all, she's a Samaritan. And Jesus, as a Jew, should have been like, I'm getting out of here. I'm not going to hang around with this person. And, and on top of that, she was a woman. At that time, a, a Jewish rabbi wouldn't spend time talking to a woman. And, and that's, she's shocked to, at first to just even experience the fact that Jesus is willing to talk to her, a Samaritan woman. But then, as he's talking with her, it becomes really apparent that he knows her. He knows her. 
he's, uh, he starts talking to her and he says, why don't you go call your husband? And she's like, well, um, I don't have a husband. And then what does he say to her? He's like, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the guy that you're with now isn't your husband at all. And immediately he puts his finger on this just incredibly embarrassing fact about who she is, her life, her shame. He says, I see you. I see you. But Jesus doesn't run. He doesn't push her away. He holds on to her. And he tells her, he, he tells her what you really need is you need me. He offers her the gift of living water that only he can give. And she can't believe it, that, that this man has seen her, seen right through her, seen into her, and yet he seems to accept her. And she goes back to the town, and she's like, come, see this guy who knows everything about me. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that we're waiting for? Could this be, could this be the one that we all have been hoping for, how we, the one who has the answers for everything, the one that we need? Of course it's him. God saw right into her and still he held on to her. That's what Jesus was like. Jesus is a living embodiment of Psalm 139. He knew her and he pursued her to love her, to hold on to her. We read earlier John 10. If you were paying attention, John 10, it talks about Jesus. It refers to him as the shepherd, the good shepherd. And what does it say about him, his relationship with the sheep? It says, I know the sheep. I know my sheep. You know, sheep aren't exactly, you know, the greatest of all the animals. Sheep are, are dumb and they're dirty and they're smelly. And yet Jesus says, I know my sheep. And you know what else he says there? He said it a couple times. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. I know my sheep and I'm going to hold on to them. I'm going to hold on to them. I'm going to love them no matter how unworthy they are. And that's how Jesus looks at you. That's how Jesus looks at me. He is the living embodiment of Psalm 139. He knows you better than you know yourself. And at the same time, knowing all of that, knowing everything about you, he says, I'm gonna hold on to you. I'm gonna love you. If we believe that, this is our problem, we don't believe it. If only we would really believe this, it will revolutionize our lives. It will set us free in ways that we can't imagine because we spend so much time, time trying to protect ourselves, trying to hide. Because when we know that Jesus sees right into us and yet he says, no, you're enough. I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna hold on to you. That's gonna create a life of absolute freedom, isn't it? in the way that we love other people, in the way that we respond to criticism and hurt, it's gonna set us free. So that's the challenge for us today. Are we gonna believe the grace of Psalm 139, that God sees you, that he knows you, that he's pursuing you, and yes, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold onto me, no matter how unworthy I am. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray that you would help us to believe this. That, that's, so many of our, our issues and our struggles and our dysfunction in life is the fact that we don't believe what you tell us. We don't believe the, the grace that you offer us. Father, we pray that you would help us to see what Jesus has done for us, that, that we are accepted as we are. And it's not because you're just willing to ignore all of the ugliness, it's because Jesus himself has entered our darkness and he has laid down his life on the cross. He has experienced darkness for us so that we would be accepted and forgiven and loved. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe that and to live with the freedom that it brings. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In light of God's knowledge of each and every one of us, it, it's silly for us not to come to him and to confess our sin, all of our deepest, darkest secrets. The good news is that he is not going to recoil. He can handle it because Jesus has paid for it. So we're going to take a moment now to confess